And so I want to talk to you guys about fasting today. I want to talk about the benefits and the pitfalls. But before I even get into that, I just want to say something that I saw about this church. And then I also want to ask you to just pray again with me because I, I love to pray. I'm from the house of prayer. I don't personally pray 24-7, but you'd think I do from how much I like to, to pray. But I, I, what I felt like the Lord was telling me about your church, I was sitting down with Arthur and we were praying together. And I just saw a picture in my mind's eye of just just people in here, two or three people. Maybe it's during lunch hour prayer or Wednesday night prayer. And the Lord said, it's kind of spoke in this mind. I had a picture in my mind's eye and he said, the church is full. You know, and then I saw a picture of, of the actual church being physically full of people. And he said, it will be full of my presence before it's full of, of people. Hallelujah. And he said, it can be full of my presence no matter how many. I was reminded the very first time I came to the house of prayer, I came in and it was worship in the middle of the night. And there was a, my friend Nathaniel was leading worship. And this was 12 years ago uh, as a college student. And he's, he's leading worship on the platform but the manifest presence of God was so, so full in the room. And I was like, this feels like I've been to Passion Conference and some of these other notable young adult conferences. I was like, the anointing and the intensity of God's presence is as though 20,000 people were here worshiping God. But it's only one man with a sincere heart upon a keyboard, right? And I just want to inspire you guys. Sometimes we think it has to be great in the natural in order, in order for the presence of God to be potent. And it's not true. It's not true. God actually loves to anoint that which is weak and small, and he loves to bless that with his presence. And if you will learn to cultivate his presence in smallness, you will steward it when God brings you increase. And instead of saying, when is it, it will it one day be, you know, it always, the manifest presence and that spirit of revival, it's always someday in the future when we're bigger and when we're stronger. And, and if you have that mentality, you'll always be, you won't be able to pray in true faith for what God wants to give you now because it'll always be deferred to someday when it's better, the building's better, the music is better, the whatever is better. And God's not looking upon those things to anoint them. He says he proves himself strong on behalf of the one whose heart is fully given over to him. So, yeah, you guys might be a congregation of, you know, I don't know, 30 or 50 that are here. But that doesn't disqualify you from, for, for, to have a disproportionate to your size of church. Go, I want a heaping helping of God's presence. I want a disproportionate. I want to feast upon the manifest presence of God. We want a disproportionate presence to the side. People come in here and they go, man, that's just, you know, we got a, you got a, some high schoolers and some young girls. And we got the pastor's wife out there. And they go, man, in the natural, it's like, that's not, that's not, uh, what what's his you know that's not Tasha Cobbs up there, that's not uh, Chris you know what's his name over in, Chris Tomlin up there. I mean they're singing his songs right, but the presence oh, but the presence of God, and you know if you guys will go deep in prayer and 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 then get keep getting out on the lawn in front of your community, so that they can come and be a part of what you're doing, then people step on the sidewalk and they go whoa. Because people that are living in darkness know what darkness feels like. But they maybe never tasted the light and they don't know what. And so they, you know, they know what the darkness of their, their own front porch feels like. And you, they know what it feels like to drive into. There's parts of your, our city that you drive into that part of the city and dark, you get that sense of oppression and heaviness. But most people just live, live under that with no awareness of what it is to taste or touch the light. 
And if you guys become a praying church, what happens is they come into the midst of your, you know, your dunk tank and your cakewalk. And you, you know, you shake hands with them. Hey, hi, how you doing? What's your name? And they feel the fruit of a life that is overflowing in light and in the presence of God. And it's not just supposed to be for Sunday morning. Amen. And so we get to we get to cultivate that presence as you guys are together Wednesday night praying, as you fast together. Pray. But then you get to do but then you get to do the joyful things like the like the harvest festival. And if you do the harvest festival with the mentality, we are going to be light, salt and light to the people that are brought to us. Oh, my goodness. You know, for those who are living in a flavorless, decaying world, you get to be salt. For those who are living in darkness, you get to be light and and. The presence of God in this place and people, people will come and it'll grow and things will be the way that they ought to be. Because when anything that's healthy grows. So if you guys will be spiritually healthy and vibrant and connected to God, right? If you abide in him, you will bear much fruit to the glory of God. Amen. So that's a that's like a foundational exhortation. Now let's pray. Okay, Father, I just thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit. I thank you that even as I was uh, giving a little prophetic exhortation there. Lord, that vision, vision was ignited in the heart of your people. And I just ask, Father, that they would be able to steward whatever you were depositing just then in them. To be a people of your presence, Lord, that are salt and light to this neighborhood, into this part of the city, into their workplace, into their schools. And I pray that you would break it down very practical for them, what it means to walk in that, what it means to be that. And that they wouldn't think that they need to preach on Sunday morning with a microphone, that they would know that they can be, that they would just become so real to them that they can be salt and light wherever you put them. We love your presence, Jesus. We honor your presence in this place. We say, let there be more of your presence, even as we teach and talk about cultivating it through fasting. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's interesting, as I prepared this talk, I felt like the Lord said, you're going to teach them about fasting, but the paradigm with which we approach fasting can be applied to so many different areas in your life, okay? And so what I want you to get is there's kind of two parallel aspects to this talk. There is the practicals of fasting, but I want you to know that fasting, the truth about fasting can be applied to many other, and I'll try and make those inferences, they can be applied to many other parts of your life in God. Right, Because there really is this dichotomy to most of us that we're walking out of what it looks like to, to presume that we approach God through dead religion. That is the human paradigm because we desire control, we desire acceptance, and we desire to be accepted to God. And it is counterintuitive to us um, in our broken, fallen human self because what was the, the very first approach of Adam and Eve was to cover their nakedness and to try and make themselves acceptable to God, right? to cover their shame, the, the immediate result of, of the fall, of the human fall and the entrance of sin into the human condition was we were going to try and cover ourselves. And that's the human tendency with dead religion, right? Through fig leaves, they said we'd try and cover ourselves. And God said, instead, I want to make a covering. And he took animal, animal clothes, which were symbolic or representative of the atonement of Christ, a slain lamb, and he clothed them with animal cloths, Right? And he said, I can do something for you that is sufficient in a way that your religiosity will be insufficient. And so 
That is the that is the struggle of the Pharisees. That is the struggle of, of Paul throughout his epistles. And that is one of the constant struggles throughout Scripture is the human tendency when a heart desires, when a heart begins to desire God to make this transition to somehow do that in our own strength as opposed to realizing that our acceptance before God is about his mercy as opposed to our ability. And when we apply that paradigm when we have that deeply rooted in us, the outworking is a healthy expression of fasting, a healthy expression of good works, a healthy expression of, of biblical study. And in so many different places, we understand it is the work of the Spirit of God in us that produces fruit, as opposed to our own ability to try and draw near to God in our own strength. And so part of understanding that, right, is we, we know that the gospel is a transformational. I love the Hillsong song. I always remember it was the name of one of the youth ministries I used to be in. It's a great name for youth ministry, Inside Out, right? And the religious tendency is to try and go, I'm going to work from the outside in. And guess what? Muslims can do that. Buddhists can do that. All kinds of people can do things outwardly that change to some degree their inward disposition. But there's nobody but the Holy Spirit that can take up residence inside a person and change their tendencies and break their habits and deliver them of their addictions from except from the inside out through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what God wants to do in us. And that's a transformation that takes place through the gospel. And so one of the things that we under, that we should understand is that we are we are three parts. There are three fundamental parts to our being. And I lay this foundation because some people haven't heard this. OK, I think it's one of those powerful truths that I've ever experienced in my whole life was when I began to understand I have a spirit that is different than my soul, which is my mind, my will and my emotions. And that's different than my body. Right. And and, and so. I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you know how the temple was constructed? There were three parts to the temple. The innermost courts, the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwells. The outermost court, which is where the people were. That was the place that was contested by Jesus because they filled the outer courts with idols at different times and God judged them. Or they filled the outer courts with money changers. And that's the place in our soul where mind and will have to make choices to accept the things of the Spirit of God. And then you have the edifice. You have the outermost part of the being. And the uh, Hebraic scholars will actually say the construct of the the construct of the temple was actually to depict the construct of the universe, and see we have the holiest of holies, which is God's highest heavens, where God actually abides, and then you have the second heavens, which is the realm where angels and demons war, and then you actually have the natural realm that's around us. Now, what's odd is that though those three things, there are distinct characteristics to each level. Am I losing you guys? Or are you guys with me? All right. There's distinction to each of those levels, right? There's still interaction in the sense that angelic beings actually fill physical space, though they're unseen. See, the second heavens and the first heavens are laid over one another, and the highest heavens commands them all. Right. And in, so in the same way, just as the temple of God was constructed, just as the universe is constructed, he has constructed your being in like manner. You'd even take it a step further and say the Trinity is actually a depiction of the of the way in which God constructed our being. There is God, the father, there is the Holy Spirit. And then there is, you know, and God, the father being the highest expression of the will of the triune being, the uh, the uh, Holy Spirit being the holy, holy presence, the manifest presence of God, and then Jesus, the actual presence of God made flesh, actually brought into the natural realm. Um, and so in like manner, we see that our being is constructed. Those, And guess what? The fact that I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. Have you guys ever felt God's presence 40,000 feet in the air? I'll just give you a little illustration of this. You've been flying through the air, and you had a little devotional time. You had some worship music, and you're like, oh, man. 
Is it because you flew through a pocket of God's presence up there, 40,000 feet in the air? No, God's presence is there because you're there 40,000 feet in the air, right? And you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so where you go, the presence of God goes. I like to think about it this way. If I walk across the room, the Holy Spirit just moved over here. Now he's moving over here, right? Because he's inside me. He's inside me. And what happens is from inside me, I yield my soul to him, my mind, will, and my emotions. And now my soul is renewed as I walk with him. And then it actually can manifest through my body. And real spiritual power can manifest through my body and, uh, and, and through prophecy, through healing, through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit are actually bringing that river that dwells inside you into manifestation. Okay? And so your being is all interconnected, but it is intended to have your spirit man live in dominion of your other three parts of your being. Right? And so because it is in your spirit man that you have the mind of Christ. And so... When you get this, your paradigm shifts from the Holy Spirit being some ethereal presence somewhere out there to where do we need to go to find the presence of the Holy Spirit? We dial down into our spirit man. And what is the power of a renewed mind is now instead of having to work to think the thoughts of Christ, I just naturally think and desire the things of Christ as I walk with him in communion, right? And so the power of fasting is much like other spiritual disciplines. And the whole purpose of spiritual disciplines is not to externally work ourselves right into uh, conformity to Christ. It is to bring us into communion with that spirit that renews and transforms us. And so the purpose of your Bible reading should not be to get more information into your mind. The purpose of your Bible reading should be to commune with God. And as you commune with God, your mind is renewed and now you can receive the thoughts of God. Right. And the purpose of your prayer life is not to uh, somehow please God through praying ritualistic prayers. It's that as I converse with God, his word deposited in me and my words before his throne actually bring a transaction between heaven and earth that brings the power of God present in my life to solve problems, to overcome sin, to wisdom, to resolve. I mean, just this exchange happens as I talk to God, which prayer is conversation. And so what does fasting do? Fasting, see how many, you know, and this is interesting. Once you start fasting, you realize this. Fasting is as much about weakening your soul as it is about weakening your body. One of the hardest things when I've done extended fasts, and I've done many fasts over the years, and I'm not boasting in that. It's been by the grace of God. I haven't really been fasting as much this past year um, because I felt like God's been teaching me something different about grace. But as I've engaged with different fasting in different seasons, um, one of the hardest things is you miss the comfort that food brings. Food is an emotionally comforting, and you begin to long for it. And so I like, when I fast, sometimes I like, I like take a bath every night because, I, because I'm just longing for some physical comfort, and I don't get to receive that from food. So yes, there's a degree to which your body is weakened by fasting, but also your soul is weakened by fasting. And guess what? It's not just that your body and soul are weakened, but your spirit is strengthened as you commune with God. And proper fasting is denying your body and your soul the, the normal comforts that it experiences. And, and then simultaneously, that's why prayer and fasting are always discussed together. Through the process of prayer, you nourish your spirit. And so what I would propose to you, and it's kind of some verses on it there in the Bible, is God wants to have you a, a strong spirit in you, right? 
And the way you strengthen your spirit, man, Paul talked about in Ephesians 3. He said in that word, might in your inner man. He goes, I pray for you that you'd have might or be strengthened in your inner man. That word is dunamis. It's the same Greek word that we get the word dynamite from. It's the miracle working power of God. And he goes, my prayer for you is that you be strengthened by dunamis power on the inside. And that from that place, then you would know the love of God. And, uh, and John 7, 37, that's the verse I put in here. And I love that in the Ephesians 3 passage, it says, from the riches of his glory. How many of you know God is rich in glory? He's so rich in glory. I mean, I just, the picture I see is just of, a, of an overflowing cup just flowing in light and power and like almost like a volcano, but instead of magma, it's like light and glorious golden. And I just, that's kind of the visual picture I have when I see from the riches of his glory, right? And he wants that golden, beautiful, energized, that liquid magma of the Holy Spirit's presence. If you just let me kind of use a visual, (laughs) uh, my holy imagination. He wants that overflowing in our inner being so that we're filled with radiating light and beauty, right? And that's what God intends to have inside of us. And he describes it. But then what I wrote in my notes, I said, what God pours in, he intends to have pour out. And so he strengthens you in your inner man. But then John 7, 37, it says that river of living water that's flowing inside of you. It says it flows from your belly. It would actually flow out on top of the people all around you. And I just love that. I love how when I commune with the Holy Spirit, a presence comes upon me and then it can come around me. And then as I release it, even the atmosphere of a church or go onto the streets of a co- go on the streets or go onto a college campus, there's actually a, uh, an anointing and a sense of God's peace and presence and healing power that I can carry. And that's God's desire is a people that are flowing in the strength of God because they're, they're communing and walking and living out of their spirit, man. Right. And, and following those, you ever have a subtle impression that you ought to do something that God's telling you to do. And that subtle impression, and, and though it's so faint, you know that this is an opportunity, it's an invitation of God. Where does that come from? That doesn't come from out there somewhere. That's the mind of Christ inside you. That's the spirit of God. That's the spirit man of God inside you, knowing supernatural things that your natural mind does not know. And as you learn to pay attention to that whisper, and the more attentive and obedient you are to that whisper, the more that you will walk in the spirit. And what happens when you walk in the spirit? You will not gratify the works of the flesh, right? And you'll be fruitful as you commune with God. And so very much of the Christian life, the Christian struggle, is learning to abide and commune with the mind of Christ that has been given to you. And it's important to know that it's been given to you because we can make the mistake of thinking we have to attain it. And if you have to attain it, that means some of us have it and some of us don't. And I can't equally uh, describe, I can't equally put the responsibility upon everyone in this room to do what I'm talking about if some of you have it and some of you don't. Does that make sense? But when you were born again, you were given all things pertaining to life and godliness, right? And it comes to this communion with the Holy Spirit that's inside you. Now, to varying degrees, we do it. We don't all do it the same, right? Because it takes courage and focus, and it takes us setting our hearts to obey Holy Spirit. But all of us have the capacity to obey Holy Spirit. And all of us have Holy Spirit talking to us all throughout the day, right? And what fasting does is it weakens our body and weakens our soul so that the voice of Holy Spirit that I believe is is happening all the time in all of our lives is a little bit louder. (laughs) That's all it does. 
is it amplifies what God is doing. And if we, we can't live our lives fasting all the time, but in seasons when God wants you extra attentive to what he's saying and what he's doing and sensitive to him, he will invite you into fasting so that you can live, so you can have an amplified sense of communion with him, right? But you're not tapping into anything that is distinct. You're actually tapping into a reality that is constantly present to you any day of your life. Does that make sense? All right, I'm going to talk about the pitfalls of fasting very briefly here. So the big one here, these, and there's, there's two ditches, right? There's the ditch of false grace that says, well, we've already, you'll hear people sometimes say this, I, we are revival, right? I am revival. I hope Arthur has, I hope you never said this. <laughs> like we don't, need to, we don't need to fast and pray for more of God's power because we already have received it all. Right. And and there is a reality of um, our position before God in which we have received it all. But then there's our, our present position in the earth. Right. Our living condition. And we want to sync up our position before God, before the throne with our present reality on the earth. And sometimes what that takes is for us to press in in faith and in prayer until we're conformed to the place that we can actually access those heaven realities. So, yes, it's true. Like by his stripes, we're healed. So all the healing we need has already been made available to us. But we have to, through prayer and fasting, access the faith to appropriate that blessing that has already been secured. And so the false, kind of this false grace message says, for example, you can just sin as much as you want because it's all been covered, right? And Paul identifies that and he goes, no, grace is not so that sin might abound, right? The purpose of grace is that we would be empowered to live righteously, though all the righteousness we need has already been purchased by Christ. Like, I'm holy before the throne of God. I'll never be rejected. But does that mean my living condition is as holy as my present position is before the throne of God? No, those are two distinct, distinct things. I want them to be one, but that's, that's the process of sanctification. Am I blowing anybody's mind? Are you guys with me? Will you with me? That's why it says... That's why it says he is sanctifying those who have, um, uh, in Hebrews, I'm misquoting it, but I think it's, it's Hebrews 10. Um, I can't remember it. Moving on. So, so we're, this sinking up between heaven and earth is happening. But then there's the other, other ditch, which is the ditch of legalism, which is this presumption I can somehow earn something from God. And I can do that and a lot of times as people begin to fast and you see the benefits of fasting, you can enter into this confusion of thinking somehow I, I did something that made God more pleased with me. So he answered my prayer or I got a greater sense of his presence or I got a greater breakthrough. And we can get a little bit addicted to this sensation of earning our standing before God. And I just want to read a little section about somebody that had that misunderstanding from Scripture. Luke 18, a Pharisee, that word Pharisee actually means set apart ones. Um, the Pharisee, one who thought of themselves as set apart, they obeyed the law perfectly. He stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. And the tax collector standing far off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, there can be this pitfall of fasting that we actually begin to take pride in our self-effort like this Pharisee did. And what the, 
miserable, sinful tax collector understood that allowed him to be justified in the eyes of God is our justification is only because of his mercy. That our justification is found in the fact that God, we can be made right with God because God is merciful. We can approach God not because of anything we've done, but because God is merciful. And it's through our abstaining from self-effort that we're actually able to come before him humbly. I said it simply this way. We do not earn things for fasting, but we position ourselves to experience what is already ours. Colossians 1.21, you who were once alienated enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet he is now reconciled in, in the body of his flesh through death. Does he say you've now been reconciled by your willingness to attend church on Sunday? Does it say you've now been reconciled because you read through the whole Bible in a year? Does it say you've been reconciled to him because you're willing to give to the poor? And see, this is what makes the religion of Christianity distinct from every other world religion and why when it comes to it, the end of the day, people go, oh, the God of Allah and the God of Christ, Christianity, the exact same. And I go, so you're telling me that you think when you die, you're going to go stand before Jesus Christ or before Muhammad? Are you? And I've asked that to Muslims who go, oh, Christianity and Islam, they're kind of the same. And I go, so do you believe you're going to stand before Jesus Christ who's given and, and given account before him of your entire life? Do you believe that he's God? And they'll go, oh, well, no, no, I wasn't saying that. <laughs> I wasn't saying that. I go, well, that's fundamentally what, what makes Christianity. Our fundamental belief is we've been made right with God, not through obedience to any laws, not through our willingness to fast. We've been made right with God through a person, through the torn flesh of a person. And it's only through the veil of his flesh we have a new and a living way to God. And what's amazing about this way is that it is open to all. Doesn't matter what culture, creed, color, what, doesn't matter what your background, doesn't matter what your economics is, it is available to all. And so it is a wide open way that is very narrow and specific. All can come, but there is only one way. And so fasting does not change the reality that there is only one way. What fasting does is it strengthens us along that path. It should strengthen us in these realities that we are totally dependent on the grace of God and on the mercy of God. And so God, this truth that Colossians 1.21, that we are wholly blameless and above reproach in his sight. See, this this idea that God does not love us or accept us any more or any less based on our faithfulness in anything. And especially in fasting. And as you endeavor to fast, this is going to happen to everybody. It happens to everybody. I'm going to fast the next three days. And you make it to lunchtime. You skipped your bowl of cereal that morning. And you go, oh, God, I committed in my heart. I felt like you're inviting me to fast. I'm, I'm done. I'm, you're done with me, God. I'm so faithless, Lord. I'm so weak. I couldn't even skip a meal. I wanted... I wanted Aunt Susie to be saved so bad. I was doing three-day fast. I don't. I care more about my sandwich than I do Aunt Susie and her eternal salvation. And you know what? That might be. There might be some truth to that. You might let the Lord kind of convict your heart a little bit there. But you know, when He looks down at you, do you know that there is still a smile on His face that you skipped your bowl of cereal for Aunt Susie, and He knew you weren't going to make it past lunchtime anyway. 
and he's not mad at you. He still loves you the same. You're not, and the, the, and what happens, and this brings me to my next point, is when we receive this legalism, we think when I'm doing good, God likes me more, and when I'm doing bad, he likes me less. And the reality of the gospel is the inverse. Jesus said it's a broken and a contrite. Well, the psalmist said there's a broken and contrite heart that God is drawn near to. And, and who did he love? He came to save sinners, right? So it's in your sinful, broken condition, your most qualified to He loves the humble. He loves to lift up the lowly. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So if you're failing at fasting produces greater poverty of spirit in you, then it's done its job. And you know what? If your ability to fast produces self-righteousness in you, you better take a break from fasting because you're fasting in your flesh. And guess what? Both those, re- as you, and this is the thing of when we start to fast, both of those realities start to come up inside us. And the thing, and the, the pressure of, the voluntary pressure of fasting that gets exerted on our soul, God's going to work out of you and purge out of you the things that He would have had to use your employee or your employer at work to work that stuff out of you. But you're getting it out a little bit in advance. He would have used Arthur to work it out of you in the Sunday morning service, you know, on the worship team when you thought, man, I was I was about to do my solo. And then Arthur came up and interrupted me to pray. And, you know, and then it's like and and it, that's, this is going to be my moment. And, you know, and it's like God has other ways to get at those things in your life. But the voluntary discipline of fasting will accelerate that. And maybe save you a little pain. In your journey. So again, he's, a, he's accepting, he's approving, he's in the process of conforming to the image of his son. He'll use fasting to do it, but he, man, he smiles over you in your weakness. And I, like I said, it brings us to the next point of condemnation. When you haven't made it through, when you didn't make it through, you know, one meal of your fast, right? And you feel like, man, God is so disappointed in me. He loves you in weakness. In the Song of Solomon, the bride says, though I'm dark, meaning I'm unattractive, I'm, I don't have the characteristics of the wealthy or the beautiful or the privileged. See, in that culture, to actually have pale skin meant that you didn't have to work outside. And that in the Israeli culture, you know, and she's saying, I'm baked by the sun. I'm, a, I'm of a different class than you. She's really talking about her status within society. She goes, I'm undeserving of your attention because I'm of a different cultural status than you. And I'm and I'm I'm dark and I've had to work every day in my life and you're a king, you know, my my hands are worn out by working out in the fields. You know, you should be with a princess that has all the all the features of beauty, you know, that are that would be uh, deserving of royalty. But he goes, though you're dark, though you're weak, though you think your status in society should disqualify you, I say you're lovely. I say you're exactly what I want. Right. And that's how he looks at us in our weakness, in our moments where our our poor performance should disqualify us from our citizenship in a heavenly kingdom where only those who are holy get to be in there. He goes, well, see, I I did something for you so you wouldn't have to because you never could have qualified yourself. He goes, I justified you. I became sin for you so that you might now be the righteousness of God. And we made a divine exchange so that you're always acceptable to me. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Lord gave me a revelation once. He said, that means that condemnation should never be a part of your emotional experience. So anytime you start to feel condemnation, it means you're not abiding in the reality of my unconditional love. See, we tend to think very naturally because we 
we get irritated with people and they fall out of favor with us because they don't perform up to our expectations. But that is not how God is. Nor is that how a father is who truly loves his children. And that's how God approaches us because of what's been done in Christ. So why that's important is because if, if you begin, what condemnation does is it's counterproductive to the Christian life. It actually pushes you away from God. That clock is not moving. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> that's why I'm over right now. Because that clock is not moving. I just realized it. I was like, I perpetually had 15 minutes. I was just looking at the big hands. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So here it is, though. No condemnation. So we should never feel guilty or condemned for failing to fast. God is pleased with our efforts and weakness. Condemnation is counterproductive because it pushes us. What condemnation does is it pushes us away from God and it diminishes our hope and faith that he can transform us. So when you seek to do something in God and then you fail and the enemy comes with condemnation, that will leave you in a place where you I'm never going to do that again. But when you know God's approval and love over you in weakness, you can just go, well, I'm going to I'm going to press delete on the cheeseburger I just had and I'm going to set my heart to fast. And you may only and you may only make it to the spaghetti dinner that night. But the Lord's still pleased with you. (laughs) And then you go, do you know, I I did my first 40 day fast. I broke it every two or three days on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. (laughs) And I was so frustrated because I just couldn't seem to do it. And then at the end of those 40 days of just not seeming to be able to do it, the Lord gave me one of the most powerful encounters of my entire life. Because I saw your weakness, little buddy. And you know what? I'm blessing you, not because you earned it, not because you deserved it, but because you persisted in seeking me, even though you fell time and time again. That's what a righteous man does. A righteous man falls 70 times, gets back up again. Not because he's got something to prove, but because he has a God who loves, who has made him a righteous man. It's not if you get up, you are a righteous man. It's because you are a righteous man, you get back up. Amen. The benefits of fasting. So I'll go through these very quickly. I think I've hit them mostly through my message already. There are three things I want to identify for you guys. One, Jesus, the Pharisees and were people of fasting. John the Baptist with the people of fasting. John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and they go, why don't you guys fast? Y'all are eating all the time, chowing down, eating steak. And they're going, we're fasting because we're believing for the kingdom of God. You guys are supposed to be, you guys are following this prophet who clearly has the power of God, but you guys don't fast. What's going on? And Jesus says, when the bridegroom is with you, it's a time for celebrating. Because this is a time for feasting. But he goes, when the bridegroom is taken away, then the friends of the bridegroom will mourn. Do I have any friends of the bridegroom in the house? Those whose hearts are filled with longing for the bridegroom. When your heart is filled with longing, you ever been lovesick or felt that ache in your soul when you when you get removed from the presence of someone you love? I felt it this morning, my kids this morning. I was like, oh, I did not want to leave them this morning. I'm glad to be with you guys. I love you guys. But my little, my little precious ones, I was just like, I don't want to leave you guys. I want to be with you guys today. There were two birthday parties yesterday. I didn't get to see them much on my day off. And I was just like, and there was an ache. And I was thinking about longing for the bridegroom. It's like when we have come to love Jesus, there's longing in our hearts for his presence. And so because we long for his presence, we lose the taste of anything worldly. And we know we get to get, we get to sample his presence, his nearness. We get, we get, 
when I diminish our physical strength and our emotional strength, we get to taste a little bit more of that sweetness of communion with God. And we get to fast in a place of love, sickness, and longing. And when you love somebody and, you, you know, it's like uh, it's when you love somebody and, and they're gone or whatever, and, you, you know, you got your girlfriend and she's gone on spring break and you're like just there all alone. You're like, I don't even want to eat. I miss her so much. She's gone. And it's, that's a, a poor depiction of it, but I think that that is a very natural example of what Jesus is talking about here is that you will, you will long with love sickness for him in the absence of his presence. And fasting amplifies that, that heart of longing. And then secondly, submission to God. And Jesus was sinless, right? But he still had to contend for that place of sinlessness because he was tempted in every way as we are. And so the way that he fortified himself to resist temptation was through fasting. And we see 40 days in the wilderness. Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And I love, such a profound statement. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and then he was hungry. Yes, that is true. <laughs> As the truth of God's word. And then the, the devil came and, and tempted him. But he was prepared to resist the temptation of the devil because he had submitted to the process that God took him through of, of obedience in the place of fasting. And verse 14, then Jesus returned. See, he was, it says he was driven to the wilderness by the Spirit, experienced temptation, and submitted himself to God through fasting. And then he came up out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. In James 4, 7, it says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And one of the ways that we, we can prepare ourselves in submission to God is through the process of fasting. Because we have to submit. We have to submit our will. We have to learn to feed ourselves and nourish ourselves through communion. And then lastly, I'll just close on this point. John 4, 32. Uh, I'll just give you the backstory here. This is the Samaritan woman at the well. I love the humanity that's depicted in this story in the book of John. John is one of the most articulate gospels concerning both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. In John chapter 4, it says, Jesus was wearied from the journey. And he's so tired, he decides to sit by the well while he sends his disciples in to get food in the city, right? And so Jesus and his disciples, they're hungry at this point. They've been traveling all day. It's hot, and Jesus is hungry, and he's thirsty. And he has this whole exchange with the Samaritan woman around how uh, if you had known who's asking you for a drink, because the Samaritan woman was like, you have no way to draw from the well. And where you, he says, I'm going to give you living water. She goes, how are you going to give me living water? And he goes, oh, if you knew who asked you for a drink, you would have asked me, and I would give you, I would give you rivers of living water. And um, I'll give you a, a fountain springing up to eternal life. And so he has this exchange with her, reveals the secrets of her heart through this word of knowledge. And she goes, I know the Messiah is coming. He goes, I actually am him. And I'm, I am he. And, uh, and she, he explains to her. And what I love about this is she traveled all the way out there to get that water. And it says in that moment, she left her water and ran back. Because in that time, if you had water, you had to like carry it on your head or carry these big basins. And she wanted to get back and tell her city about what she discovered. She was so eager that she abandoned her natural, her natural circumstance in order to get back and actually share with her city. And while she's running back, it says she goes back in town and she was so swift to just tell people about Jesus. She's so excited. It says the people started to stream out of the city to him. But while this, uh, is, this dynamic is happening in the city, the disciples are crying out Jesus. And I think Jesus knows what's about to happen, right? 
Jesus knows that, that what he, the demonstration of power and what it produced in this woman, he saw her dump her water basin and run back towards the city. He goes, oh man, the whole city is about to come out to hear me. And what's so intriguing is his disciples were scandalized by the reality because of the, the racial element. The Samaritans were considered half-breeds. They were considered human mutts. They were considered um, beneath the Gentiles, in fact, because they were a blending of the Gentile people and the Jewish people, and they practiced kind of ancestor worship instead of the, the pure religion of the Jews. And so they were considered uh, ones that you could not speak to, could not interact with. And I love what Jesus does just on a racial point right here. He not only speaks to the Samaritan woman, but he makes all his disciples live two days in the Samaritan village. Talk about cultural reconciliation. They're like, you talk to her? And he's like, we're going to go stay in their city. <laughs> we're going to go teach them for two whole dates. Jesus was a radical cultural reconciler. And, but how does, so they come out to him. Remember, he was hungry. He was tired. But at this point, because of the, the ministry opportunity that was demanded of him, he didn't say, I'm going to have a sandwich. What he said is, I'm going to press in for more of God. John 4, 32, he said to them, I have food to eat, which you do not know. And the disciples looked at one another and says, has someone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And he goes, if I don't choose to fast in this moment, I will not be spiritually prepared for the opportunity that I'm presented. And so right now, instead of feeding my natural self and instead of giving in to my own, and there's a word for somebody in here. There are people in here that you are tired you're tired in your work environment. You're tired in your ministry context. And the invitation of the Lord, the reason you're tired or you're feeling burned out is not because you're doing too much ministry, doing too much work. It's because you're doing too much on your own. And Jesus understood that I need greater communion with my heavenly father in order to advance the kingdom. And so I'm, gonna, I'm not going to eat physical food. What I'm going to do is I'm going to nourish myself right now on God so that I can be equipped for the ministry opportunity ahead. Do not say there's still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look to the field. They are already white for harvest as the crowds stream out to him. Mark 9, 28. When he come into the house, the disciples asked him privately. This is after a demonized boy. Uh, they were unable to cast the demon out. And they said, why could we not cast it out? And he said, and this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. Now, I think some people misappropriate this text and have that mentality that somehow they earn deliverance or healing through, uh, through the process of prayer and fasting. But what I believe Jesus is actually saying is a lifestyle of prayer and fasting, if you'll allow me to insert this, because I believe it's, it's true, with the, I believe it's congruent with the rest of the narrative of Scripture. A lifestyle of prayer and fasting produces the communion and the faith necessary to drive out demons. And he's going, if you want real prayer on your life, prayer and fasting are emblematic of a life submitted to God. What I believe is that these, these disciples, they thought, maybe if I raise my voice a little bit louder at this demon, the demon will come out. Come out, demon, and Jesus said, I tell you, come out now, demon. And I hate now, I've cast demons out that way, okay? But if, if all you have is the loudness of your voice as opposed to a deep and abiding connection with the person of Jesus that gives you the faith to actually use his name. His name is not a word like bibbidi-bobbidi-boo or hocus-pocus. His name is emblematic of the one whose authority you come in, right? Just like if I came in this room and I said, in the name of, and I, I let's just, the President of the United States, right? 
in the name of the president of the United States or some other governing official, I better actually have a real representative. I better have a real rep- a real relationship with the one in whose authority I'm coming. When you check my credentials and you go, does he does he really come representing whoever I say I'm coming to represent? That's going to determine whether or not you submit to my authority. And so he's going, you are basically going in lip service when you went to do that deliverance, as opposed to an abiding reality in which you draw on the power of heaven through prayer and fasting. So 21 days, you guys are going to fast here in a few weeks. And I would challenge you, do not give in to legalism, do not give in to condemnation, but let your heart be filled with longing for the bridegroom. Let your life be characterized by a holiness of heart that is based on submission to God. And it's twofold. You cannot resist the devil unless your life is submitted to the Lord. And when you have that internal calibration of righteousness, then that allows you to move forward into conquering the territory of the enemy and doing the works of God. And from that place, you will manifest his power. And what is true of you on the inside, you will make true in the world around you. What he does in you is what he will do in the world around you. Say that with me now. What he does in me, he will do in the world around me. What he does in me, he will do in the world around me. And so if you bring yourself into submission to God, you will have authority to bring principalities and powers into submission to God. Stand with me and we'll close in prayer. Thank you for giving me extra time. I didn't know I took it. I want to just ask for the grace of fasting to come on this community. I also want to just pray for any deliverance needs. I just felt like that was highlighted as we... And so if you know in your life there is a sin struggle that has been demonically energized, there's been things that you've been listening to, things you've been setting before your eyes, temptation that you've been struggling with, and it feels amplified and intensified, and it feels like the enemy has a hold in some area in your life. I just want to pray for freedom for you in that. And you don't need to acknowledge that to any other person right now. Maybe you should later in private to a trusted friend, and and I encourage you to do that if there's some place where the devil has a foothold. But I believe the Lord wants to set people free right now. And so you can just acknowledge your need for that freedom by placing your hand on your on your heart or on your on your stomach or just some posture of acknowledging I'm going to receive from you right now. You can open your hands before the Lord and just say, God, I want right now all the freedom that you have for me. Father, I want right now an impartation of, of, your, of your grace to fast. I want a revelation of it. So first I'm going to pray for that impartation and we'll pray for that deliverance and healing. Father, I thank you right now in Jesus' name. Lord, that there is transference in the kingdom of God and that I just, I I release my faith, Father, right now for people to receive grace as I humble myself before you and I say, Lord, that I I cannot do anything but you can, you can deposit into each person in this room and I ask right now, deposit, God, deposit from your spirit, Lord, deposit right now inside of each one that has deposited, God, right now, deposit it, let that weight of glory, that impartation of glory, just let it be received right now in childlike faith, the gifts, the gifts of God, the gifts of God, even as others have laid hands on me, and have prayed for me and I received an impartation of grace to say yes to fasting. Release that grace right now. That internal alignment, that deposit of faith. That faith that allows us to listen and obey the whispers. Yes. Receive in Jesus' name. Yes. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for hearts prepared by your word to receive in faith. Thank you, Lord, right now. Thank you for each one that desires it. Grace for fasting right now. Grace to be a praying church. Grace to feed upon Jesus and to deny the flesh and the body and the soul. And lastly, I pray in the authority of Jesus of Nazareth over every place of demonic oppression. And I command every demonic oppression in Jesus' name to be gone from people's lives now. I command it to go in Jesus' name. Every place where this where the soul has been uh, entrapped and ensnared by the evil one. We command them that we command those snares to loose now in the name of Jesus. And we release in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We say the people of God go free right now from every, every heavy burden, every heavy yoke of the enemy. Say the anointing of God breaks that yoke now in Jesus' name. And we say oppression be gone. Evil one be gone. Whispers of the evil one be gone now in Jesus' name. Jesus' name, Jesus' name, it's the strongest name. It's your name, your name, your name. Just begin to speak the name of Jesus. Say, Jesus, wash over me. Jesus, fill me. Jesus, deliver me. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You are healer. You are deliverer. Jesus. I sense the Spirit of God. I just sense the presence of the Lord on my mind. Um, on my head, I just feel his manifest presence. And I, I just, just declare right now the people's minds that need to be healed. Yeah. Depression must go, heaviness go. Jesus. In the name of Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. Just lift your hands and worship to him if you desire. You can get on your knees, whatever you like. Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. You're free to go if you need to go. I just want to give a moment longer for people to receive from the Lord. I believe people are being set free in this moment. Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. Jesus. You break the power of sin and darkness over us. So I just seal those prayers right now, Lord. That no tormenting or afflicting spirit. Lord, those with night terrors, if you wake up in the middle of the night with uncontrollable anxiety, we command that anxiety to go in Jesus' name right now. We thank you, God, for those wrestling with, uh, Lord, with, with burdens of depression. We, we command that to flee in Jesus' name yes. right now. And we release light in the spirit to fill each person, filling each vessel wholeness and light and healing in each person. The blood of Jesus is their covering. The infilling of the Holy Spirit. Declare that over each one. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys so much. God bless you all.